it's not gonna matter that much. You know, eventually they're gonna poop in the potty. Like, you know, <laughs> if that happens now or in like nine years, eventually we're getting there. But as they get older, you get many more of these decisions where you feel like, boy, the choice I make here is gonna have these long-term implications, these long-term consequences, and like, hope I don't mess it up. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we're excited to have Emily Oster back on the podcast. She joined us in episode 98, debunking many of the myths that we hear as parents. And Emily is a professor at Brown University. She has a PhD from Harvard and is the author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. So Emily, please introduce yourself to our audience. And I'd love it if you dove into why you wrote your latest book, The Family Firm. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to be back. So as you said, I'm Emily Astor. I'm a professor at Brown. I am a writer, which is what I do with most of my time. I'm a mom, which I think is relevant for this conversation. My kids are 11 and 7, and I live in Rhode Island. That's my bio. This book, Family Firm, is about parenting older kids. I had written two books before this, one about pregnancy and one about early parenting. And I don't know. I needed to write something new. I like, <laughs> like write about the older kids. But the thing that was challenging about this age group and the thing that the book really focuses on is the question of decision making. So as I thought about moving my writing from kind of the choices that we make with two year olds into the choices we make with 10 year olds, the very clear distinction there is that so many of the decisions we make with older kids are really unique to the circumstances that we're mm -hmm. facing. Mm -hmm. And so while there is a lot of data, which echoes my earlier work, and I try to give people some data to use, and I'm sure we can talk about that. There's a huge piece of this. This is about how do we structure decisions? How do we make sure that the kind of busy lives we lead are serving the things that are important to us? And so the book is really in almost two pieces, one piece, which is about data, but the other piece, which is about crafting the life that you want, about decision-making structures and how to, I don't know, use Asana to make your spouse do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Important topics like that. Well, and it's just so great that you're able to do both and you articulate it so well in this book, in all of your books, but definitely this book because the decisions do get trickier as kids get older. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode, Amy and I both have sick kiddos at home right now. So Amy's at home with her kids today and we've both been looking forward to this interview so much because we're actually going to be diving into the family firm and parenting in the school age years, which is the part that we are entering in right now. Mm -hmm. And we know many in our audience are in the same season or getting close. So Emily, you do the research. You do the research so well to make it easier for us as parents to make these decisions that do just keep on getting harder. So can you dive into that four F's framework and also how we can begin to use it? Absolutely. So I designed this idea of this 4F framework to be used when you're making a big decision. So that would be, you know, not should my kid have tuna fish today, but something like what's the right school to choose or should we go to sleepaway summer camp or you know, should we do this major extracurricular investment? So the idea is that all of those decisions, 
I think the way we often come to them is in a way that's very unstructured. So you mm-hmm. sort of know that this is a decision that's coming. You kind of think about it. You give it a tremendous amount of brain space, but in a scattered way. So it's almost like living in your head all the time. And then you find a moment, like right when your spouse is about to go to sleep to be like, you know, another thing we didn't think about is this. And it's like, I'm trying to go to sleep. You know, so perfect timing, right? Like perfect timing. <laughs> So the argument in the book is that decisions like that deserve to be taken seriously the way you would take a decision of that magnitude at work. And they deserve to therefore be done in a structured way. And so I have this sort of four-step process to make it relatively easy to kind of remember. The first step is to frame the question, to actually articulate distinctly what are the choices that you're making. So is it this school versus that school? Is it you know, private school versus public school? Is it these two different school districts? Like what exactly is the option set? So The idea is that I think it's very hard to make a decision between like, should my kid go to this school or not? Because or not is not a school. Mm -hmm. And but we often I think we do have that that instinct to kind of frame our decisions as the kind of default choice versus something else. It's hard to weigh something else against something concrete. So the idea is to have more than one concrete choice. So you frame the question, you fact find. So get all of the information you need to make this decision. So whether that's data about school performance or about, you know, what do these summer camps look like? Whatever is the information. And some of that is, you know, maybe research data, but some of it is also just logistical details, basically put together in one place, all of the information you need for this choice. And then, and only then, once you have the information you need, do you move on to the third step, which is final decision, which you sit down and actually make a decision and you try hard to make that decision with all the information and then move on. And then not kind of continually revisit that decision the next morning in the shower or the next afternoon at the, you know, on the run or whatever it is. You just, you make the decision and try to move on, except that there's a fourth step in this, which is follow up. I try to make the point that it's very important with many of our decisions that we give ourselves an opportunity to reevaluate them because there's so much hysteresis. And so if you have decided to do soccer, then you almost certainly will just keep doing it every year, even if you hated it. Right. Because we've sort of like made this choice. We made a decision to do it. And we don't often give ourselves the opportunity to say, hey, let's pick a specific time to say, how did that go? Do we want to do that again next year? And that that follow up is actually an important part of decision making. That's a very long description of the four Fs. So it's framing, fact finding, final decision and then follow up. And Emily, I'm glad that you brought up the final decision and moving on because as a ruminator, I can think, well, wait, was that the best decision? Hold on. Let me do some more fact fighting. It's like, no, make the decision, move on, knowing that that fourth step is there and you can always go back to see if it's the best decision. Exactly. And I think part of what we do that's not serving our decision making well is to fail to separate the fact finding from the final Mm -hmm. decision. So I think Mm -hmm. we often have an instinct. I'm going to get one piece of information and then I'm going to kind of in my head decide, okay, we're going this one direction. But then another piece of information comes in. It's like, oh, no, I'm going to go a different direction. And so there's a lot of value in separating those two things out. I feel like you can see inside my head right now. (laughs) And I remember implementing this after our first interview with you. And it truly does help with the analysis paralysis that can come from so many of these parenting decisions. And in the family firm, you also detail out the big family picture. And I couldn't help but relate this to the standard operating procedures that we follow in business. Like they Mm -hmm. just felt so in line. So for those who like a plan, please explain this concept and also just what should it entail? 
I think exactly what this will entail is going to depend a little bit on kind of what your family needs, which is sort of the same as with the business. But the main idea is to try to find a way to articulate the central values and priorities that your family has and try to put it together in a way that is written down that we can kind of refer back to when we are looking for how are we going to ground our family or how are we going to make decisions between even between activities where there might be things in conflict. So one part of this is to try to articulate some big picture values. So I talk about Mm -hmm. people having a mission statement. Not everybody likes to have a mission statement. So for some people, that idea of just we're going to encapsulate, like, what does our family want to do in like a one sentence thing? Some people find that very helpful. The alternative, which I will say I find more helpful, is to say kind of what are the three most important things to you or the even the three most important things you want to do every day. Right, which is a much more concrete version of like, what is your mission statement? It's like, literally, what do you want to be doing every day? Like, what are the things that you want everyone in your family to be doing on a Tuesday? And so I have in the book a lot of tools that are effectively different ways into this same question. So schedules. So one exercise is to just fill out like, what do you hope your schedule will look like? Like literally every day, what should your schedule look like? Another piece is write down the three kind of top values for things you're trying to achieve with your kids. Another thing is write down the three things you want to do every weekend. And putting all of those things together, you kind of get an overall picture, hopefully, of how you want your lives to look and what things you want to prioritize. And I will say sort of one more thing about this, which is I think the, in some ways, the most important practical lesson in doing this for a lot of people is the idea that you should do it in writing separately from your partner. If you are in a partnership and so you are making these decisions together, there is huge value in each taking a piece of paper and writing down, like, what are the three things you want to make sure you do every weekend? Because if we have the same things, like, great, then we can sort of think about whether we're implementing that effectively. If our things are totally different, we should really talk about that because if my dream is to go hiking every weekend and your dream is to like, you know, eat popcorn at Dave and Buster's, we probably want to try to come together on that. So we're not just fighting every Saturday morning about like, what is the activity for today? When I remember you had brought up Eve Rodsky in this chapter specifically in her book, Fair Play. And we've had Eve Rodsky on the podcast before and they really do. Oh, she's amazing. And they really do go hand in hand when establishing this big picture plan as it relates to the family. So I'm just so glad that you're able to kind of pull those two pieces together. And it is just so important because I can look at Colin and think that I have this picture perfect plan, but if his looks different, it's not going to be perfect for our entire family. I also think there's a, there's a, a value in articulating the things that are most important to you and identifying those as the central things rather than what I think sometimes happens for some of us, like this person here talking to you, <laughs> where it becomes the case that everything is the most important. When I am alone with the kids, I have a lot of, like I do things in a particular way with them. When my husband is with the kids, he doesn't always do everything exactly the same way that I do using my <laughs> patented amazing systems that I come up with. And a big part of the making that work, I think has been recognizing, you know, which are the things that I think are really important that I want to make sure that we're always doing with them, no matter who is with them. And which of these things are just like, hey, this is the way that I do it, but actually it's okay if if you do it differently. But unless you articulate, unless you are able to say what are the things that are really important and what are the things that are kind of like B-list, that it can lead to a lot of conflict. 
Well, that's helpful, Emily, because I know there's a lot of people in this audience that are like you and me who not everything goes exactly as planned when our partners are the ones in charge of it. So having that priority list and then having the B list and knowing that some of the B list may get done, but as long as the priority list is part of the picture, then that can be a win for everybody. And a quick break from our podcast sponsor, which is BetterHelp. As we all know, parenting at any age can be so hard. Things are thrown our way, life gets tricky, decisions are hard to make. And I have spoken with my therapist, Susan from BetterHelp Online Therapy so many times about just the struggles that I have in parenthood as a mother, trying to play all the roles simultaneously. It's been great because we can chat either on a walk, so I can just go out for a walk and talk with Susan on the phone. We can sit down and have more of a formal video conference. Otherwise, she's been able to send me resources on all the topics that we've talked about, but definitely on the things that I need the most help with just through the chat feature. Being able to send links or simple newsletters or little tips just to go on with my day has been such a helpful part of therapy and just of parenthood in general. So our listeners do get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com backslash herself. And again, that's 10% off at betterhelp.com backslash herself. Your mental health matters. You matter. And if therapy has been on your mind or on your to-do list, on that priority list for a while, it's time to get the help that you need. Let's switch gears a little bit here because Amy and I, we both have kindergartners this year and with spring birthdays, they're relatively young for their class. And Emily, you have a lot of data on this concept of like, should we redshirt or should we not redshirt kids based on the month that they're born? So what are the important factors to consider as parents make their decision on this piece of it? One thing is to just be clear on kind of what we're talking about and how common this is. So when we talk about redshirting kindergartners, we mean holding kids back. So they enter kindergarten you know, a year later than they would typically. This has become far more common over time, although mostly with kids with summer birthdays. So you said your kid has a spring birthday and they are relatively old for their age. That is probably because most of the kids with the summer birthdays were held back. And this has become I think it's actually much more true during the pandemic. But even before that, it was becoming sort of more true in disproportionately true in some school districts than relative to others. If you ask sort of like, what's the sort of benefit or cost of of doing this? The downside to holding your kid back is in some ways like pretty straightforward. They're going to finish college later. And so if we sort of think about like the economic standpoint of this, like it's fewer years of earning, you know, they will be less rich by the age of 30 than they would be otherwise. (laughs) Like there's some mechanical things of that nature. Probably for many parents, the more important issue is that when kids enter school early, they are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD and other sort of behavioral issues like in that space. And we know that from data that exploits differences in kind of month of birth. So if you, it's the mechanics are a little complicated, but basically the information we have on that is sufficiently good that I think we should be fairly confident that in fact, it is the kind of age of entry rather than the kid that is driving this. And you can also see why that might be. So there's a lot of growth, particularly for boys between the ages of five and six in their ability Mm -hmm. to sort of sit still and listen. And so if you have the only five-year-old in a classroom of almost seven-year-olds, 
their behavior may well seem pretty outside the norm. It may well be outside the norm for the class that they're in, although not necessarily outside the norm for their age group. But because Mm -hmm. we are naturally comparing the kids to each other, that seems to contribute to then people thinking, you know, maybe this kid needs some behavioral intervention. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I think we sh- it's very good that we can provide supports for kids who need them. But it is also not the case that we want to be diagnosing with kids with ADHD when in, the reality is that it is not, that it is just their age, their sort of relative age. So those are some of the considerations. And I think for parents, it weighs a lot kind of thinking about what is typical in my school district the value to parents in holding a child back is going to be much greater if everyone else is also doing that. Oh, that just gets so tricky because yes. you can look at one child and in their own situation by themselves, you know, they're acting normally or typically as they would, but compared to kids that are much older, all of a sudden the comparison is what may be incorrectly diagnosing or just making it more difficult to figure that part out. When we sort of get down the rabbit hole of this, it has a lot of societal implications that are pretty important to think about. So if it is a bunch of higher income people who are holding their kids back because they have more resources to be able to do that, you then are sort of exacerbating in, in pre-existing inequality across income groups and diagnoses of behavioral disorders and other things. So none of this is straightforward to evaluate. Well, I even remember reading Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers in my early mm-hmm. 20s. And I know that he specifically had a piece about professional hockey players. Yeah. And you might be like, wait, where are you going with this? But the professional hockey players and that depending on the month that they were born, like spoiler alert, most professionals were born in the early parts of the year because they were bigger, stronger, all the above. And so I just couldn't help but relate that book to this yeah. chapter specifically of, gosh, how different it is depending on the month that they're born. Yeah. And, you know, for reasons we definitely don't, I mean, I'm not sure how much it matters for being a professional hockey player, like, but like we do, you, you sort of think about, I'm going to make this choice and maybe that's going to have implications for my kid forever, which is part of what I find very fraught about this time of parenting that is in some ways feels very different from when the kids were little. I felt Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. whether it's true or not, many of the decisions I made when my kids were like two, I was like, all right, well, it is not that it's like, it's not gonna matter that much. You know, eventually they're going to poop in the potty. Like, you know, (laughs) if that happens now or in like nine years, eventually we're getting there. But as they get older, you get many more of these decisions where you feel like, boy, the choice I make here is going to have these long-term implications, these long-term consequences. And like, hope I don't mess it up. Oh, I know. And we all know that it differs for every kid. It differs for every family. I just find these types of stats so intriguing to just look into and just to see, just to see some of the behind the scenes. And a quick break from our podcast sponsor, which is Rothy's. Plainly put, Rothy's are head-turning shoes. They are so cute that people notice them. And you'll notice how insanely comfortable they are. Right from the start, it's almost like a slipper. You put them on and you're like, yep, that's more like it. Rothy's also takes sustainability to the next level. Every single one of their products are knit with thread made from plastic water bottles, and they've repurposed around 125 million water bottles so far. So you will see Amy and I wearing the Chelsea frequently in our photo shoots and out and about and the pointed toe flats. You guys, these are so comfortable and they are so cute. We also love that 
each pair of Rothy's shoes is machine washable. So just toss them in the washing machine with your other clothes and they come out looking like new. So your new favorite pair of shoes are definitely waiting. Discover the versatile styles that you can wear absolutely anywhere and get $20 off your very first purchase by going to rothys.com slash herself. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash herself for $20 off your very first order. So Emily, I had to laugh about when you discussed the helicopter versus tiger versus chicken versus ostrich parenting styles. I feel like I personally toggle between tiger and chicken depending on the situation. But I knew I for sure grew up in like the freest range chicken farm home possible, like freest range possible. And I know many people, they know their parenting style. They know the one that they naturally fall into. But could you give some details on like the pros and cons of each and also things that we should be aware of? So the first thing I think people should be aware of is like I title this chapter with these different types, including ostrich, which I totally made up. Um, <laughs> but I, I also like I think the first thing I try to say is like you do not have to pick a type. You can pick the elements of parenting that are going to work for you. And you, you know, you can be a, like a person who lets your kids play out in the street with their friends, but also like makes them do math worksheets. And like that's an available parenting type, even if it doesn't have like a name. You know, when we think about these different parenting types, a lot of the distinctions come down to sort of how are we going to think about like either physical or how we're going to think about autonomy. And that can mm-hmm. that can be autonomy in the physical space or it can be autonomy in the responsibility space. And one, I think, pretty important distinction between the sort of traditional, like what we call helicopter parenting and what we call free range parenting would be in the in how much scaffolding I'm providing my kids and how much I'm letting them sort of be out on their own in the world. And in the data, what you can see is there's probably some happy medium between those. It's certainly the case that greater parental involvement to some extent is associated with better outcomes. And by outcomes there, we typically mean things like test scores because that's kind of all we can measure. So mm-hmm. let's like put a pin in whether it would be better to have different data. But when you look at sort of parental involvement, it's sort of positively correlated with a lot of those outcomes. And yet we also have some information, particularly coming out of older kids that, you know, there can be too much of this, that, you know, Mm. kids can sort of come to like college students can come to basically present their parents and, and that sort of excessive parental involvement at some stages can be associated with higher rates of depression and, and anxiety in college kids. So it sort of seems like there's some middle ground in the data. But what I also encourage the parents to think about is just, you know, again, coming back to like, what do you want your family life to look like? If you are the person who wakes your kid up every day and you are not giving them autonomy with that, you're taking responsibility for that, that may be fine. But eventually they have to wake themselves up because eventually they're not going to be in your house anymore. And so at some point they have to learn that. Now you may say, well, they can learn that when they go to college. Maybe they will, but it actually may be hard for them to learn that. Then you may want them to learn that earlier. And thinking through, I mean, this is such a small example, but I think it comes like thinking through, like, do you want to make them learn that they have to wake up to their alarm when they're 16, when there's like a really important junior year math test that like, if they don't get a good grade on it, like they're not going to be successful. Like you probably don't want to let them oversleep that time. So in some ways, there's some value to kind of pushing autonomy to younger ages when the stakes are lower, when forgetting your running shoes or your homework or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, is going to be less important. Well, 
let's go into that because as Amy and I know, and so many of our listeners know, it can be a lot of work to get multiple kids ready and out the door mm. every morning. Yeah. So let's chat about how to create independence with specific tasks. So you talk about this total autonomy in your mm. book and how we can help our kids learn autonomy at this really young age. What does this look like? Like, how do we even start, especially when kids are so used to us as parents doing most of the things? Yeah. So I talk about the idea of total responsibility transfer and the idea that your kid should be totally responsible for some activities. And I can sort of say a little, I'll say a little bit more about like how one might set that up, but I want to be clear that this is something where I think the ideas I have are very good, but they are also something I find very hard to implement. (laughs) So like, it's just, you know, the kind of independence that I would like to foster, I think my spouse finds much easier to enforce than I do. So this is just like full disclosure, something I really, I wish I had an easier time implementing. But if I were to have an easy time implementing, here's what I would do. In some ways, the key point is that when you transfer responsibility to someone, and that can be your spouse, it could also be the kids, that you transfer the whole responsibility. So if you're responsible for making sure your stuff is in your backpack, you are fully responsible for that. It's not just the putting of the, it's not that your responsibility is just, I hand you the computer and you put it in your backpack. That's not a total responsibility transfer. Total responsibility transfer is you are in charge of your computer, which means you're in charge of making sure that it's plugged in at night and you're in charge of bringing it downstairs in the morning and you're in charge of getting your backpack and you're in charge of remembering it's there. And the sort of additional side of that is that if I am trying to transfer that responsibility to my kid, I have to be willing, and this is a thing I'm very bad at, I have to be willing to let them fail, right? And that is really something I think that parents have to think about, like, you know, where's my limit on that? What am I going to do when they forget? So when my kid forgets Mm -hmm. their computer, what Mm -hmm. do I do? Do I bring it to them? Well, then you haven't totally transferred responsibility, right? Am I going to be willing to say, I guess you don't have your computer at school today? And I don't know. Some people are more willing to do that than others. But I think this is part of thinking through these things is just thinking about, you know, what do I want to accomplish? Where do I want to get to? And kind of what am I willing to do on the way there? It's a hard balance trying to figure out. You don't want them to be miserable the day of. If they forget their lunch, for instance, you don't want them to starve. And at the same time, you want them to learn the ropes along the way. So it's, it's tricky. It's a tricky balance there. Yeah. Like I get that. Yeah. And I think, and you know, it's, and so sometimes there's a way to like work up to it. Like maybe you start with something that it's okay if they forget, right? Mm-hmm. You say like your responsibility, responsible for packing your snack and knowing that like, if they miss snack, like it's not the end of the world, they'll eat the cheddar yeah. bunnies that their friend offers. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, you sort of build those up and it's, it's like any kind of responsibility. Like the first thing is it's your kid's responsibility, to get their shoes on. And then later it's sort of their responsibility to get their pants on and get dressed in various ways. And so there's ways to kind of build that up, but it is true that you have to be willing to, you know, like let them fail. Let them fail, which is very, very hard for some personality types. I can definitely, yes. <laughs> I definitely see that one. One thing that we've done, Emily, is we've moved the coat hooks down in their lockers mm. and we got them all shoes with a Velcro. So those are two things, for instance, like she's in charge of putting her backpack, like Lucy's in charge of putting her backpack on the hook. Mike is in charge of putting his backpack that doesn't have anything in it, but he just wants a backpack because his older sister has a backpack sure. on the hook. And they're both <laughs> in charge of putting their shoes on. So just two things that we've done, but there are so many things that mm-hmm. we can continue working on. One other thing that we're working on right now, and I know this is something that you've struggled with in the past, is self-confidence and self-worth in children. Like Mm -hmm. we know, like our middle child, for instance, he's having a really big challenge with this. And we're just trying to figure out, like, what does the research say on how we can help our kids at home to find that good middle ground between them 
not being the bully, but them also not being bullied and having that type of self-confidence that we just want with our children so badly. I think, you know, unfortunately, this is a place where like, I have a whole section of the book called Feelings and and Mm -hmm. this kind of a place where we'd like to have better data. And there is some work on, you know, there is there is some work on kind of in school programs to try to address kind of bullying in classrooms. When we come to looking at individual kids and particularly looking at things like resilience, what makes kids resilient to bullying, Mm -hmm. which I think is in some ways perhaps the most useful approach to to it from a family standpoint, because you can't really control that much what's happening in your kid's school environment. What you can control is how they react, what you can, well, you can't control, but what you can try to affect is how they react to it. And so I like some of these studies where they try to look at, you know, conditional on being bullied, which kids are more affected by it. So rather than saying like, what makes you not be bullied, which is something we just can't really control that much. There's a kind of what makes you resilient to that. And there it's really about in-house support. It's really about sort of knowing that you're coming home to a safe space, that you know your family loves you, that your siblings love you. And there's a lot of ways we can scaffold that and make sure that there's you know family time and that the kids know that they have a safe space to talk to. But that's sort of the key resilience piece. But I mean, I share your view. I think it's like some of the hardest things as a parent are when your kid is like, you know, nobody likes me. And you're yeah. just like, it just, it's just like crushing. And you want to be like, where's that kid? I'm going <laughs> to right. find them and I'm going to, you know, make them like you. I'm going to make them like you. That does not work. Oh boy. Oh, that's tricky. And we hope to have child psychologists on the podcast too, just to dig even deeper yeah. for our listeners who are having those. But that's just a really good starting point, at least, yeah. is figuring out that resilience, even if trying to call that bully and being like, oh, you're going to like this kid. <laughs> we know that that's not ex- exactly effective. Yeah. Oh, Parenting. It's hard. <laughs> it is hard. hard. It is hard. But you do the research, but then you also understand that the situations are going to differ depending on the family and the kid. So I yeah. really do enjoy that balance here. Let's talk about screen time. There are different kinds of screen time, but it's almost been vilified in this day and age between TV shows, video games, apps, audiobooks. I mean, there's children's podcasts now. There's so much to choose from. And we know they aren't all bad, but you've done the work. Like, you know the data. What does it say to totally avoid if there is stuff to avoid? And also, what can we use to also assist in development at all? First of all, the frame of screen time is bad would be helpful to move away from. Oh, okay, a lot good. of times when we talk about screens, there's this thing underlying, which is like, okay, well, of course we all agree. Less screens are better and screens are bad, but sometimes we have to use them because of our terrible parenting and our need for a break because we're terrible. And I guess we're just going to give up and throw ourselves on the log of shame. Or There's like this attitude around screens that is, I think, tremendously unhelpful. So when I talk about this in the book, I tell people to sort of try to separate out two things. One is the time that people spend on screens and the other is the content, right? So Mm. when we look at like content, like what kind of content is per se bad is problematic. It's almost exactly the things you would think, which is like, you want to make sure your kid is not watching stuff that disturbs them. The same thing you do with like reading or something else, you know, so, so your three-year-old does not need to watch saw, you know, like that's, that's like a mistake. There's this sort of like, I don't want my kid to watch stuff that's disturbing them. Actually, when you look in the research about like, do violent, you know, when kids play violent video games, do they get more violent? That's actually not something we really see much of in the data. So 
on the one hand, you want to use your parental judgment. On the other hand, if your kid actually does watch Saw, it's going to be a lot of bad dreams, but it's not that they're going to become a serial killer. But anyway, don't let your kid watch that. That's my tip for the day. You can take that away from this podcast. Um, so content wise, I think we can sort of set that aside. Then you want to think about the time aspect of this. And that's where I think families get into the shaming, get into the like, I'm using the TV as a babysitter. So here's a thought experiment. Imagine that instead of watching television, the activity we were talking about was staring at the wall, staring at the wall. That's the activity. And now imagine you said, my kid's going to stare at the wall for 45 minutes. My kid's going to go up to their room for 45 minutes before dinner every night, and they're going to stare at the wall. And you would be like, that's amazing. My kid's such a good meditator. You know, they're just there. <laughs> this like, And of course, watching TV is not like meditating, but it, it is the case that it, it's a kind of like that analogy makes clear that what we're doing here is we're doing this instead of something else. And so there's nothing inherently mm-hmm. bad or good about television. It's just, it's time that could be spent on something else. So if your kid was staring at the wall for nine hours a day, that wouldn't be good because they also need to go to school and sleep and do all kinds of other stuff. If your kid is staring at the wall for 45 minutes, you know, while you make dinner and like relax a little bit so you can all be in like a better emotional space to eat together, that's actually probably good. And so when families think about this, I think the right way to do it is to just think about where does this fit in your day? Where is it going to be helpful and not hurtful? It's something that we can use. It's a tool that we use. It's a thing that people like. It's something that is fun. It shouldn't be 15 hours of the day. Mm. And just having that time and content as a basis for it, like that helps right there. I also got a lot out of when you said there's no substitute for thinking. Like if like obviously like math, like doing math homework versus watching TV, we can all probably agree that doing math homework probably a little bit better than watching TV. However, is watching TV terrible? No. No. So let's give ourselves grace, you guys. Everyone give yourselves grace. If you need a break, (laughs) that's okay. Like somebody wrote to me, the other thing is like, there's sometimes when you just got to have TV. Like somebody wrote to me the other day and they were like, everyone in my house has COVID and also the norovirus at the same time. And my three-year-old's been watching a lot of TV and I'm worried about this. I was just like, it's fine. Like, you know, you have COVID and the norovirus at the same time. Like this is a time for TV. That's what TV is made for. Yes. Yes, it sure is. And both Amy and I have had the TV on a lot this last week as we battle sick kids. Oh, Emily, as always, this has been such an awesome conversation. Can you let our listeners know where they can find more of you? The best place to find me is at my newsletter, which is Parent Data on Substack. And you can find my books where books are. And yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, if you love this interview, make sure to go check out episode 98 with Emily Oster as well. And if you guys could do us the biggest favor and write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, Amy and I, we read every single one of them and it's a free way to help support our podcast and help us grow. So thank you so much for those of you who take the few minutes to do this. And Emily, thank you so much for being on yet again. Thank you so much for having me. 